God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. We'll be in Genesis chapter 32 on Wednesday night if you want to read ahead. Uh, If you're new to Calvary, we go verse-by-verse through the Old Testament on Wednesdays and verse-by-verse through the New Testament on Sunday, book-by-book, chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse, because we are to know and study the whole counsel of God. Amen? Nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Leviticus is just as inspired as Luke. We need to read it all. Amen? All right. God bless Ted. I I appreciate just the, the brokenness he has and the compassion and the burden that he has for unborn children, for moms who are in the midst of difficult time. And you know what? We as the body of Christ, the Bible says the pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. And you know, the Lord would have us to minister to those blessed children. And so it's a privilege. I praise God that we have so many people in this body who volunteer at PRC. We actually contribute as a church um, monthly to it as well. And so I just praise God for that ministry. And I appreciate uh, Ted's heart as much as what he had to say. Amen? So praise the Lord. Uh, by the way, it's in your bulletin as well. You know I'm not a super political pastor, but I'm going to get political about this. Yes, we should vote yes on Proposition 8. Amen? God created marriage. God designed marriage. God defines marriage. And even if it doesn't pass, God's still the one who says who's married and who's not. But you know what? We need to make a stand for the truth. Amen? So let me encourage you to do that. All right. Second Peter chapter 2. Picking up where we left off, I know last week we, uh, we took a side, a side step and we looked at divine appointments. My prayer is that you had some this week and that you keep praying for more next week, amen? God has divine appointments. He didn't save us that we would be pew potatoes. He didn't save us that we'd be the biggest, fattest, best fed sheep in town. He saved us to use us for his glory. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be like the Dead Sea, all inlet and no outlet, but that we'd walk out of this place having a burden for the lost around us and realizing that God has a calling on our life. So let me encourage you, divine appointments, let's be praying for them. Now, as we come to 2 Peter, we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 2. And just by way of quick review, remember that this letter was written with a sense, of, a sense of urgency from the Apostle Peter to the first century church that was not only going through persecution that was addressed in his first letter, but now false teaching from within. So outward persecution and inward corruption. And you'll see as we continue through the letter, there's a great sense of urgency in his heart because he knows that that inward false teaching, that inward corruption would be a temptation to lead people away from the truth. Guys, there's nothing new under the sun. There are false teachers today who call themselves Christians. Guys, it's not how charismatic they are. It's not how big of a crowd they draw. It's whether or not what they say agrees with the word of God. The Word of God is the plumb line. The Word of God is the authority. The world we live in today in its pursuit of political correctness, its rejection of absolute truth, and its adoption of moral relativism would look at these false teachers that we're going to address in this morning's text and their depravity of their message and the deception of their words and say, hey, live and let live. They just got their own path. They just got their own pattern. They just have a different way of looking at the Bible. After all, the Bible can be interpreted in so many different ways. 
Well, it is true that people can interpret the Bible in different ways, but the Bible can only be accurately interpreted one way. And Jesus Christ is the way. Amen? And when interpretations come with any other gospel or any other message, it's not the word of God. And so the world may say it's not that big a deal, but we're going to see Peter responds in a little bit different way about the false teachers that have come into the church. And he's being very direct and he's exhorting them that this is not something to be played with. That really what is happening is that the enemy is getting a foothold in the church. He makes it clear that these deceptive words and depraved actions of these false teachers is far more than just harmless fun or an avenue of free speech, but is indeed doctrine of the devil. Oh, Pastor Dave, I didn't want to know we were talking about the devil today. Guys, guess what? There's a roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can't attack us from the outside, he'll try to trip us up from the inside. Guys, that's why we are so staunch in the teaching of the whole counsel of God. He wants to undermine the truth. He wants to draw men away from God. And and again, unto himself. And so do the false teachers. To deceive the people. To feed and justify their depraved behavior. Again, it's not harmless fun to be laughed off as insignificant. But demonic deception that God indeed will judge. So last time in verses 4 through 6, we saw that God is one who brings judgment against unrighteousness. Now that's not a politically correct thing today, is it? It's not politically correct to say that anybody's ever going to be judged for anything. We're all just going to live our lives and hey, as long as we you know, are good people. Well, if you came here this morning and you thought you were a good person, let me just clue you in. You're not. Amen? The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's why we desperately need a Savior because we are all sinners who've been separated from God, who desperately need to be redeemed. And so we know in the verses 4 through 6, he gave some very clear examples as they might have been thinking, hey, it's not a big deal if the doctrine's a little bit off. It's not a big deal if a false teacher or two creeps within the church. He reminds them of what had happened in the past, that God had brought righteous judgment first in the days of Noah. Now you got to love Noah because Noah... And that it was a time when it said everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everybody, the world was filled with wickedness. Their thoughts and their hearts and their intents were on wickedness always. Now we look at that and we think, boy, the world must have been rough. But you know what? I don't think we're far from that today. Amen? There's so much wickedness in the world that we live in today. Why? Because the world has gotten away from the true and the living God. Well, in the midst of all of it, they were just eating and drinking. The judgment was about to come. Noah spent 120 years building a boat when it had never rained. He was a faithful man. And as Noah was faithfully obeying God, we know that the people acted like that the judgment would never come. Today we live in a time where it's like the days of Noah. And it says that when the coming of the Son of Man, when he comes again, it will be as in the days of Noah. In those days it will be like the days of Noah. And so while we look at the wickedness that's in the world today, and it may you know, cause our hearts to, to grieve, and it does, at the same time it ought to quicken our hearts that re- our redemption draws near. Amen? To realize that he could come back at any time. Well, Noah for 120 years built a boat. It says he preached righteousness and the people still did not receive it. So what happened in the end? God brought judgment upon the earth in the flood. And in that flood, only eight people survived. 
Many believe there were hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on the planet at the time. And only eight turned to the Lord. We then looked at Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that in the days of Noah, there was, their actions and thought were, were wicked constantly. Well, in Sodom and Gomorrah, perversion was running rampant. They were calling good evil and evil good. They were living in a time where there was no restraint, where there was no self-control. Everything was about feeding what the flesh wants with no thoughts of God whatsoever. And we know that because of their hardened hearts, because they had turned themselves over to perversion, that God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll talk more about that this morning. But as we saw, that God brought righteous judgment. And sometimes people look at that and they think, wait a minute, isn't he a God of love and grace and mercy? And the answer is absolutely. And he suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Guys, if we really love somebody, we need to warn them in a loving and a gracious way that righteous judgment is coming. His desire is that none should perish. No, not one. Amen? He wants to see everybody come to the saving knowledge of his son, through his son. And he holds out salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. But eventually he's going to give people what they want. In Sodom, we know the angels came. And when the angels came, even then they rejected the message and we'll see how they responded to them as we go through this morning's text. Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality had been promoted as normal and acceptable behavior. As... We heard this morning from Ted, our schools are indoctrinating our kids that homosexuality is normal and acceptable behavior. We have a love for no matter what somebody's, you know, perversion or sin or struggle may be, we love them and the Lord loves them. But we should never say that sin is okay. We should never dial it down. Even the changing of the word, gay means happy, amen? But homosexuality does not produce happiness. It produces heartache and separation from Almighty God. The people, the very people they think are their friends promoting their lifestyle, the people that are their friends are those who are reaching out to them in love and pointing them to the truth of the gospel. We are to stand for the truth, love people enough to warn them of the judgment to come. So that brings us to this morning's text. And I titled the message, Two Paths, Pick One. Two paths, pick one. And here's why. Because we're going to see the exhortation coming from Peter as he writes to these precious saints who he knows he will never see again. This is not long before Peter was crucified himself, choosing to be crucified upside down so as not to be uh, slain the same way that his Savior was. But his exhortation is very, very clear as we go through the text. So the two main points we're going to see this morning is the destiny of the righteous. The destiny of the righteous, and then the destiny and the description of the ungodly. Again, those receiving this letter were facing outward persecution, but also inward corruption. He's going to encourage them to stand fast and to know that if they do, that God is going to deliver them. But then he's also going to make it very clear just who the ungodly are. Help them to recognize who the false teachers are. How do we recognize false teachers today? We're going to look at a list as we go through the text this morning and we will see how to recognize the false teachers. So let's begin in verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Two paths, pick one. The first one is destiny of the righteous. And it says there in verse 7, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now, in verse 5, we saw that while God brought righteous judgment upon the world, he saved Noah at the time of the flood. And then we saw again in the following verses that God not only saved Noah, but he delivered Lot out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what's amazing to me is if this verse were not in the Bible, I would wonder if Lot were in heaven. And again, it's not my call, nor do I want it. But just looking at the Old Testament, Lot, not so much. Now, Noah, he's a righteous guy. He says, the Bible says he preached righteousness. He was a faithful man of God. He was faithful even when nobody would listen to the message. For 120 years, again, he built a boat when it had never rained before. He was a faithful man. It's not surprising to us that he would be called righteous Noah. But when you get to him calling Lot righteous Lot, you think, what in the world did he ever do that would have made him righteous? Let's review Lot's story quickly. Remember that Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And they had gone down into Egypt in disobedience because Abraham, a famine came. He didn't trust God and he took Lot down to Egypt. And as they came out of Egypt, he brought out a nephew whose attitude had changed about everything. It's been said you could take Lot out of Egypt, but you couldn't take Egypt out of Lot. And when he came out of Egypt, he came out a very wealthy man. And you know the story if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, that they came to a place where they had so much wealth between them that Lot's servants and Abraham's servants began to fight with one another. Abraham, having learned that doing things his own way didn't work out too well, going down into Egypt and lying about his wife and saying she was his sister, now has come to a point where he doesn't want to strive anymore, at least at this moment. So he comes to Lot and says to him, okay, Lot, you know what? My, my flocks are huge, so are yours. We can't be in the same place together. You choose one way and I'll go the other. Even though Abraham was the uncle, even though Abraham was the one with the promise of God, he gave the choice to Lot. And if we remember the story, Lot looked out and he saw the greenness in the valley and he chose, and he pitched his tent, the Bible says, toward Sodom. Why? Because he only looked from the outward appearance. Guys, this is a mistake we can all make. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. We need not be led by our flesh or our feelings, but be moved by the Holy Spirit. Lot doesn't pray. He pitches his tent toward Sodom. Next time we see him, he's camping near Sodom. And then before we know it, he's not only living there, but he's one of the judges in the gates of Sodom. He's become a political figure in this place of total depravity. While he is there, we know that God sends the angels because Abraham prayed. He heard that Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be wiped out. So Abraham prayed and said, if there's 50 righteous, 40 righteous, all the way down to 10 righteous. And the Lord said to Abraham, if there's 10, I'll save it. He sends the angels down. And when the angels come, immediate conviction comes to Lot's heart. Uh Uh-oh. These guys have come to the land of depravity. And they were going to camp out in the town square in the middle of the night. He knew that's not a good play. You don't want to do that in Sodom. This place is filled with perversion. He knew those men left out there all night would be raped. And so he brought them into his house. And even though they were within his doors, a place of hospitality, all the men 
of Sodom came to his door and began to bang on the door and beg that they would send out the two angels so that they might have sex with them. This is a gnarly story. And here's Lot. What does he do? Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. Here's his thought process. Um, tell you what. Let me keep the angels in here and I'll give you my two virgin daughters to do with as you will. Man, I mean, not that you can do that in heaven, but don't you want to just give the guy a shiver or something? Lot, what are you thinking? Are you out of your mind? I have a daughter. You've got to be kidding me. And this is righteous Lot. You know what this points to, guys? This points to the grace of God. Because he's called righteous Lot, and even after he finally gets out of the city, his character was so flawed that when he went to his own son-in-laws and said, judgment is coming, they thought that he was mocking them, that he was making fun of them, that he was making a joke. How bad is your character that if you witness to somebody, they think you're kidding? I had a coworker one time that I was sitting, and he was over in a cubicle area where the the artist are, and he was getting some artwork done. And I remember him telling somebody he was a Christian, and literally all four of the artists and the person he was talking to began to laugh so loud, two of them fell on the floor and were holding their stomachs laughing. And I thought, that's not a good testimony. That's not how you want people to respond when you tell them that you're a Christian. And here's Lot telling them that judgment is going to come, and they just laugh. you got to be kidding me. We know that what happens is the only people that are escape are Lot, his two daughters, and at least for a minute, his wife. But remember, he had brought his wife there. They lived in Sodom for 20 years. And during that time there, that had become home to her. It became the thing that she longed for. And we know what happened. Even as Sodom was being judged by God, as he was bringing down you know, fire upon the place, she turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. Righteous law. Well, he must have done better after that, right? Well, not really, because he got drunk and he impregnated both of his daughters. This is righteous law. Now, let me ask you something. If you didn't read this verse, would you think, hearing that story, that this guy was righteous? But what it tells me is that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen? That's the New Testament version of that verse. Here's the reality. It's not who we were. It's who we are in Christ. That God can take any man, any woman, no matter what your past, no matter what you've done, and make you righteous Dale, a righteous Dan, a righteous Dave. Amen? Our God can do that. Our God is faithful. And so he's righteous Lot. What a word of encouragement that he would be righteous even though we've seen the fact that he's been so far away from walking with God. He looked only with physical eyes. He seemed as one, again, even by his own children. Now notice what it says about him though. Delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The word oppressed, if you have a King James Version, it says vexed. And the word means to tire with toil, to exhaust with labor, to afflict or oppress. That means that while Lot was dwelling within Sodom, he didn't like it. It bothered him. The wickedness all around him bothered him. The filthy conduct, the word there, is sexual debauchery. So it's hard to fully grasp the the depths of the perversion that surrounded Lot, but it tells us that it was wearing on him. And then it says in verse 8, For that righteous man dwelling among them tortured his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The word tormented there means grievously pained. 
while tormented by all the perversion going on around him, it hadn't tormented him enough to leave. Guys, some of us, we're standing right in the middle of a godless environment and it torments our hearts, but we don't allow it to torment us enough to take action. Lot should have left, amen? He should have been sharing his faith. He should have been pointing them to the true and living God. And if they didn't want to hear it, he should have left. Guys, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Too many churches today say we need to be more and more like the world. I say no. We need to be more and more like the Lord and less and less like the world. Amen? But we see that Lot, he was vexed in his spirit. It was tormenting him to be in that environment. But guess what happens, guys? The longer we stay, the more desensitized to sin that we become. Is that true or not? Think about in your own life how there were things that used to shock you that don't shock you anymore because you've heard it a hundred times. I remember the first time I heard on television God's name taken in vain. I was very close to throwing my TV through the window. You know, you heard it and you went, what? Did I just hear that? And now, sadly, it's commonplace. Guys, we become desensitized to sinful behavior. Now again, we're not to go sit on a mountaintop somewhere and chant till God comes back, amen? He didn't call us to go, you know, hide away from the world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. We're to have an impact on the world, not be impacted by it. And guys, we should not stand by and allow sinful behavior to impact us, but, but our godly behavior ought to be impacting them. Guys, here's the truth. Every day, either the world's impacting us or we're impacting it. And guys, we can't do it unless we're filled to overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because without Him, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So his soul was tormented, but he failed to follow through with godly actions and separate himself and his family from the wickedness. And you know what breaks my heart about this too? Is that we know he had other daughters who were married besides these virgin daughters who went with him and they all perished in Sodom. Why did they perish in Sodom? Because Lot stayed. Guys, sometimes we're sacrificing our children at the altar of entertainment. Sometimes we're allowing things into our house that don't belong there because it's entertaining to our flesh. Guys, may we never make our entertainment more important than raising our kids in a godly home. I know it's not easy, but you know what? The Lord would have us to make a stand. Would it be worth it if you knew that the behavior you're making is going to have the impact on your kids that it had on lots? Would you continue to, to dwell that way? Would you continue to stay in that environment? If Lot had known, maybe he would have left sooner. What an incredible testimony of God's grace that this man is called righteous Lot. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So too we should not remain complacent when it comes to wickedness. And so we see there that he was tormented in his righteous soul from day to day. So I believe that that's a, that should be something that is commonplace in a Christian. Here's the truth, you guys. We should not walk around, you know, in a sense like China dolls, broken by, but at the same time, I believe that there should be some sensitivity towards sin that when people around us, when things around us are wicked, it ought to grieve us. And it's only going to grieve us if we have an eternal perspective. It's only going to grieve us if we've been resensitized to sin, amen? 
We've showed that movie Time Changers here. Let me encourage you to watch that. I think we have it in the bookstore. It'll resensitize you to sin. A guy's brought forward a hundred years in time and he's blown away to see what's going on around him. The people in the church aren't blown away at all because they've gotten used to it. God, help us not to be used to sin. Help us not to be desensitized to sinful behavior. Then it says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The Lord is holy, he's righteous, he's just, and he's faithful. And he's faithful to judge the ungodly and to deliver mercy to the redeemed. Guys, there's two camps. Those who've been redeemed, forgiven by God, who are going to heaven, and those who have rejected him, who are facing eternity in hellfire. Oh man, I I brought a friend today. Pastor Dave, why are you talking about hell? Guys, here's the reality. Here's the reality. Heaven is real and so is hell. And you know what? He desires that no one go to hell, but everyone who goes will only go there by running over the cross of Christ to get there, by rejecting the free gift of salvation. God desires that we would be born again, every one of us. He's so so in love with you. You are his treasured possession. He'd rather die than live without you, and he proved it by sending his son. And you know what? May we not leave here without him, amen? But we see here this contrast. We see here that he brings judgment upon the wicked, but notice what it says, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Aren't you glad that God's on your side when you're being tempted? Aren't you glad that his desire is to to bring you out? Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. He took a great amount of effort to deliver Lot, and he took a great amount of effort to deliver you. How do you determine the value of something? What someone's willing to pay for it. What was paid for you? He sent his son to die in your place. God's word tells us that he has not appointed us unto wrath. Just as he drew Lot out and redeemed him, drew him out and saved him before he brought righteous judgment, this is a picture, guys, of the rapture of the church. God has not appointed us to wrath before he brings righteous judgment upon the earth. He's going to snatch away his children. Guys, people say to me, well, Pastor Dave, don't, maybe we're going to be here through the tribulation. No, we're not. Other people have a different opinion. They're wrong, and we love them anyway. But here's the point. If you look through Scripture, you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there's the church. In chapter 4, it says John is called up into heaven. From chapter 4 to the end, you don't see the church again. Why? Because the church is in heaven. The Bible tells us he has not appointed us to wrath. Guys, I'm an imperfect dad. Would I pour out wrath on my kids? No way. How much more does perfect holy God Desire not to pour out wrath upon us, but to redeem us. Guys, you know why wrath will not be poured out upon us? Because the wrath for our sin was poured out on Jesus. And he took the price himself. And he said upon the cross of Calvary, it is finished. And guess what? If he says it's finished, it's finished. Amen? And guess what? So guys, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and there's a trumpet coming, and there's going to be a time coming, we're going to be snatched away, and praise God, we're not going to face righteous judgment. But here's the point, every believer on heaven, every believer this side of heaven, should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell, amen? We should not say, okay, I got my get out of hell free card, I'm going to heaven, I'm just going to be on the cruise ship now, you know, and just kind of hang out. 
until heaven comes. But the Lord didn't save us that, again, we'd be you know, arranging deck chairs in the Titanic. He didn't want us to just be sitting around and just waiting for the end to come. He called us to use us for his glory. We see here this exhortation that he knows how to bring the godly out of temptation. How does he do it? He took the punishment for us. But I want you to notice something. While God will indeed judge and punish the ungodly, the, the, the godly person is, is not preserved from temptation. He will, not be preserved, he will be preserved in temptation. Notice it says that God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to remove all the trials out of your life. Some people have come to Christ that way. If you come to Jesus, you'll never have another problem. You ever heard a message like that? Let me explain something to you. That's not true. As a matter of fact, your problems might double or triple. You know why? Because there's an enemy that's not very happy that you just got saved. But the truth is this. God is greater. God is faithful. God's hand is upon you. And he may not deliver you and remove the temptation from you, but he's going to bring you through the temptation. He's going to bring you through the storm. And that's exactly what he's going to do for Lot. Throughout the scriptures, we don't have time to go through them all, but Joseph, godly man, sold into slavery and then unjustly imprisoned. Daniel, thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into a fiery furnace. The apostles were persecuted, imprisoned, and all but John martyred. Christians around the world are being persecuted. Many are being killed. But in the end, the Lord knows how to rescue us. And he knows how to deliver us out of temptation. He's going to rescue us from the planet before he brings righteous judgment. So point number one, two paths, pick one. We see the destiny of the righteous. We've been redeemed. We're going to heaven. He's going to snatch us away before the righteous judgment comes. As he did with Noah, as he did with Lot, he will do with you and I. If we choose to follow him. But not everybody will. Because notice the second point. The destiny and description of the ungodly. It begins there in the second half of verse 9. He says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Guys, we're going to see as we're going through the picture we have here of not only the false prophet, but the carnal Christian, the person who says they're a Christian, but there's no fruit in their life. Uh, Christian posers, as I used to call them when I was a youth pastor. You know what a poser is? Poser is somebody who pretends to be something they're not. When I was in high school, we had surf, you know, guys who posed as surfers. You know, they had the surfboard on their car, and they had the wax and the stickers, and they wore the surfer gear, and they'd never seen the ocean. And you called them posers. You had posers, you know, guys who pretended to be athletes. Well, guess what? In the Christian church today, we have people with stickers on their car and maybe a big Bible they might carry around every once in a while. And maybe they even show up for church. But guys, it's not the outward appearance. It's the inward transformation that makes you a Christian. And so this, we're going to see the identity here is not just these guys who are false teachers who are all look good on the outside, many of them no doubt very charismatic, but we're going to find out as we go through the text that they are not truly believers in the true and living God. And if they're not, and since they're not, judgment is coming. And notice how he begins to give us a description of, of these false teachers, of these unbelievers pretending to be Christians. He says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. So the further description of these false prophets is they walk in the lust of uncleanness. He's talking about sexual immorality. 
Now, let me just say this this morning from the heart of love, because I love you guys. If you come to been here at all, you know that I love you. You know that I pray for you every week. If you're in the church directory, I go through and pray for you by name. I love you guys, and I love you enough to tell you the truth. Here it comes. If you are here this morning, and you are involved in any type of sexual relationship outside of marriage, you need to repent. You need to reread your Bible. It doesn't matter if you're engaged. It doesn't matter if he says he loves you. If he loves you, he'll wait. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're living with somebody, but we're going to get married later, you need to move out until you get married. Man, I didn't come for this. Hell, I got attacked for living together. What's that about? Guys, the body of Christ, as Christians, we need to love each other enough to point each other to the truth. He's not a no-fun bummer God trying to keep you from fun. He's a loving Heavenly Father who wants to keep you from harm. He knows that sex outside of marriage does nothing but bring destruction. He knows that if, if it's confined to the way He designed it, it will be wonderful. Well, what if I've already blown it? Repent and start serving him now. Amen? He's faithful and just to forgive us. The Bible tells us that fornicators, fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're sexually active outside of marriage, it's time for you to, again, reread your Bible and repent. Now, we're not just anybody in this world. Do you understand that? But the whole world does it. Do you understand? You're not the whole world. I'm not the whole world. We are Christians. Amen? We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are his children adopted into his family. Guys, we're filled with the spirit of the living God. We've been given a down payment on heaven and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We should be different. If the whole world is doing it, it doesn't make it right. The word of God is the standard, and the word of God tells us we're not to be involved in sex outside of marriage. He says these false teachers, the way you will recognize them is they're sexually immoral. The way you will recognize those who are Christian posers, in many cases, is they're sexually immoral. Does that mean that there aren't any Christians who are sexually immoral? Sadly, we know that's not the case. But Lord, help us to be convicted and to get right with you. We're Christians. We're indwelt by the Spirit. And while the apostles and the prophets were the pillar of the early churches, and they taught them the truth of God's word, these false teachers had come along and said, you don't need to worry about your behavior anymore. It's okay if you want to sleep around. You want to go out and drink and party? Go right ahead. Our God's a God of love and grace. He doesn't really care how you live your lifestyle. Hey, you've been born again. You're forgiven. That gives you liberty in Christ. You know what? We've been given freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Amen? And sadly, today what we're seeing too often is that anything goes. You know, I love it at that church because they never talk about sin. They made me feel really good about myself. I ran into a young uh, woman at a Christian bookstore one time, and she was about eight months pregnant, and I heard her talking to the owner, and he's saying, oh, you know, Father's Day was coming, and you want to give it a gift for your husband? She said, well, I'm not married, and, you know, and hey, we're not, we want to see her saved. We want to see her, you know, praise God that she didn't abort the baby. But you know what she said? He said, well, where do you fellowship? She said, well, I used to go to XYZ Church, but they would tell me it was wrong to live with my boyfriend and not be married. She said, but now I go to another church and it's just fine with them. You know what, guys? 
the church is called out by God to be set apart from the world and not be like the world, amen? Not self-righteous, not holier than thou, but broken before him and trusting in the word of God. So we notice here that sexual immorality, but notice also they will despise authority. Now in context, he's speaking of heavenly authority. They despise God's authority. My authority, my opinions above God's word, this is what false teachers often say. They've got a special revelation that supersedes the word of God. By the way, you guys, the word of God tells us that if anybody comes preaching another gospel, even if it's an angel, we're not to believe them. But isn't it amazing that entire cults are based on the fact that an angel showed up and brought another gospel? If we would just read the Bible, we wouldn't fall for that. Amen? And it's heartbreaking and it's sad to see what has happened. And isn't it interesting that in almost all the cults, there's a great deal of sexual depravity that goes on. I was just watching a special on Mormonism. I had no idea that Brigham Young had 57 wives. Joseph Smith had over 30 wives. And the person said he was trying to sanctify his sexual behavior by making it godly. Guys, the word of God is the standard, amen? Not what a man says, not what the leader of a church says. What does the word of God say? And sadly, we see that there's this heart to question authority. I don't want anybody having authority over my life. You know who started that? Satan. What did he say in heaven? He said, I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. He thought so much of himself, he tried to overthrow God. He did not want to submit to Almighty God. And what a picture we see in Jesus Christ, who being fully God, submits himself freely to the Heavenly Father. What a contrast, amen? And when we see those who submit to no authority, who have no authority over them, who despise authority, those are characteristics of a false teacher notice it also says they are presumptuous the word presumptuous means that they are bold in their false teaching they speak with great freedom about these false things that they're teaching you know what guys a bold mouth does not equal truth sometimes we think well that guy is so convinced it must be true you can be convinced you can be fully convinced and fully wrong at the same time amen And so they were pompous. These false teachers, they were sexually immoral. They despised authority because they wanted to be the authority themselves. And they were very pompous, very arrogant, very bold in what they taught. And then it says they were self-willed. Again, taking their cue from Satan. I will, not thy will, but my will be done. They're following the devil's example. And then it says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, Not only do they not submit to the authority in heaven, they don't want any authority on earth either. And guys, we need to be careful of this. Pray for our president, no matter who he is, rather than walk around bashing him. Amen? God allows whoever's in office to be in office. We need to pray for him. And you know what? Too often we can start to doubt and question authority at work and in the government and everywhere else. When we realize, Romans 13 says, that we're to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. And the false teachers will question the authority and slam the authority, be it heavenly authority or earthly authority. This is the sign of a false teacher. This is a sign of a carnal Christian. Those who would question and doubt the order that has been placed by God. Then it says... 
Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a revealing, a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. You know what? The angels don't bring accusations against them, but these men do. This is a mark again of a false teacher in that they know more. They're really smart. They've got it figured out beyond what anybody else has. You know, when someone is this wise, they're not wise, they're ignorant. Amen? When people think they know more than God. I've had people tell me that. We know more today than the prophets who wrote the Bible knew when they wrote it. I said, are you out of your mind? We know more today than Jesus knew back then. What? Are you? Dude, you're way too smart for me to talk to. Because nobody, there's no way. That's ignorance. Jesus Christ is almighty God, creator of the universe. How foolish it is. And it says there, but these like natural brute, brute beasts, verse 12, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Again, how foolish, claiming to be wise, they become as fools. Finite man elevating himself to a place of intellect above infinite God. It says they are like brute beasts. You know what I thought of? Cows out grazing. You know the future hamburgers of America? You ever drive by and you see them all out there? And they got no idea the judgment that's coming, right? And that's what I thought about. They're like, they're, I thought they're just chewing. I got no idea. Judgment's coming. You know, for a cow, it's quick, it's instant. They don't have a soul. And they taste really good the next day. But you know, but the point is this. For the, for the false prophet, judgment is coming and it's eternal. And it says here, they're like brute beasts. They don't get it. These false teachers walk around in arrogance, not realizing that judgment is coming. False prophet will face an eternal judgment in full measure of their own corruption. Notice next what it says. Let's finish up. And he will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Carousing in the daytime. You know what this says of a false prophet? A false teacher? Applies to a carnal Christian? They have no shame. They have no shame. They live in a sinful behavior and they're not ashamed of it. Guys, when we're walking with the Lord, our sin brings grief to our hearts. It convicts us. It drives us to our knees, amen? But there's no shame walking out in the open, just choosing to live an ungodly life and not being ashamed of it. But notice what it says. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. The word for feast is the agape feast. You know, we didn't create that here at Calvary Chapel. But what's interesting is, whenever they would have communion, they would follow it up with an agape feast. And what he's saying is, they live an ungodly life, they live it with boldness, they're unashamed about their sinful, sinful behavior, they're sexually immoral, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're self-serving, and in the midst of all of that, they still come and take communion like nothing's wrong. And it says they bring a blemish to the feast. When they come in and live an ungodly life and act like there's no accountability to Almighty God, they come to the Lord's table as if nothing is wrong. They ruin the garment. That's what spots and blemishes do. They ruin the garment. They're mocking the call to holiness. It says in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Even as they're about their right religious duties, they're checking out the women. I'm not going to say the name because the Bible says by the mouth of two or more witnesses. But I was in India. There was a very famous guy 
there who's very well known. And I was told by my, uh, the guy that was traveling with me that he'd been traveling with the guy the day before and the guy wanted to know where he could get a prostitute. You know, there are those who have this mentality that because they're in a position of authority, because, you know, they are drawing the huge crowds, that they're above the word of God, that they're above the truth of the gospel. And these false teachers, many of them are womanizers. They look at women as an opportunity for adultery. While they're supposed to be ministering to somebody, they're trying to figure out how they can get with that person. And notice it even says there that when they do this, they entice the unstable souls. They look for those who are newer in their faith, not as well grounded, and they take their you know, Christian celebrity and use it as a way to get that person to sleep with them. How, how sad is this? And this was going on in those days, and it's still going on today. And then it says, we'll finish off here because we're running out of time. It says, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accused accursed children. They, here's what the thing. They have learned, they are all about money. So not only all about you know, women, but they're all about money. And not only are they very covetous in their behavior, but they've learned how to get money out of people. And guys, we can manipulate people to get their money. And false teachers do that. I remember a guy not too long ago that came on TV and was saying that he'd lost all his possessions. He was a pretty well-known evangelist. He said he lost all his possessions. Him and his wife were on TV weeping, saying they just got out of their house because their house had burnt to the ground. They just got out with the clothes on their back. And because of this sob story, tens of millions of dollars were raised. And then 2020 revealed that they had four more mansions. And the place that had burnt down was actually a pool house in one of their mansions. You know what? False teachers are covetous and false teachers are pursuing the money and false teachers know how to get money out of people. You know what? I pray that we can come to a place and I know we have it here in this church where you will never ever think that we want your money. We don't even pass an offering here. Why not? I don't want anybody ever to come here and think that our motivation is to get your money. Should we give? What's the answer? But we give from a cheerful heart. Amen? Not because a man manipulated you, but you give to the Lord because you love him. Sometimes they'll justify their wealth. They'll say, well, a CEO has a mansion. Why shouldn't I have one? You know, isn't it interesting that it says that our Savior had no place to lay his head? Isn't it interesting that we're to be, if we want to be great in God's kingdom, and learn to be the servant of all? Again, it's okay to have a house. It's okay to have possessions, but we should possess them. They should not possess us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the priority and the passion of your life? What is it you pursue? What are you trying to accumulate? What is great wealth in your eyes? Can I tell you, the most wealthy person in the world is the one who's walking in the center of God's will. The most wealthy person in the world is the one who is a godly example to their spouse and to their children, who's a godly example in the workplace, who represents Jesus Christ well. They're the wealthy ones. Because guys, our father's got the cattle on a thousand hills, amen? And where our mansion is, it can never be stolen. And it will never rust away. And if anybody's been investing in the stock market lately, uh, guess what? You give me a millionaire one day and and a poorhouse the next. But when you got Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And we stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ. We don't stand upon the rock of our 401k plan. We don't stand upon the rock of our possessions. We don't stand upon the rock of our career. We stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And then it says, I know I said I was going to stop. But let me, it says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam is such a sad story. Because Balaam was a prophet of God who's, who was willing to sell out being a prophet for money. Balak, we'll finish with this, called him and said, Balaam, will you come and curse Israel? They're coming into the land to take possession. If you'll come up and curse them, then I'll know that that they can't come into the land. And I'll give you money if you'll curse them. And Balaam went up four different times because he was enticed by the money. And each time he went to curse them, he opened his mouth and blessings came out. He couldn't do anything but bless the Lord. He couldn't do it. So finally, he comes to him with a plan. And here's what he says. Here's an idea. You cannot attack them from the outside. Their God is too great. But you can corrupt them from the inside. So here's what you need to do, Balak. Send your young, pretty, pagan women into their camp. Have them entice the men to sleep with them. Bring their idols with them. And have it be a form of idol worship. Burn some incense when this is all going on. And you know what? God then will judge them himself because he will not be able to stand by and watch it happen. And he gave that counsel to Balak. That's what Balak did. And you know what happened? God brought righteous judgment upon Israel. But guess what? Balaam wouldn't escape it. Because now, as he's going along his way, still wanting to to get the wealth, get the riches, watch what happens. It says in verse 16, But he was rebuked for his iniquity as a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. He was riding along at great speed because he was headed toward what he knew would bring him financial gain, even though it would bring harm to others. And as he was traveling along, he was moving so quickly, there was an angel standing in front of him. And there was a passage that was closed in on both sides. And as he was traveling, he's beating the tar out of the donkey. And the donkey is crushing his feet against the sides of the passageway to get him to stop. He won't stop. He keeps beating the donkey. Finally, the donkey sits down on the ground, just straight stops. He starts beating the tar out of the donkey some more, and then finally the donkey turns around and says, Dude, do you not see the angel in front of us with the sword in his hand? Pastor Dave paraphrased. Are you not... Are you paying any, aren't I a good donkey? Haven't I always listened to you? Why am I stopping now? I'm trying to save your life. And here's the scary part. Balaam talks back to the donkey. He argues with the donkey, and not only that, he loses the argument with the donkey. The way of Balaam is when we put financial gain above obedience to God. When we put even someone else's walk as being secondary to our own financial gain. When we start to say, hey, if I can gain financially, but it causes others to stumble in their faith, then bring it on. That's the way of Balaam. And that's the way of the false teachers in those days. And then it says, lastly, that these are wells without water, Clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Can you imagine traveling through the desert? You look in a distance and what do you see? But you see a, a well. You're dying of thirst. 
you run to the well, you get to the edge, you drop your bucket into the well, and you hear it hit the bottom, and there's nothing there but dirt. And he says the false prophets are like a dried up well. They can satisfy no thirst, they can quench nothing, they produce no fruit, and then it says they're like a cloud carried by a tempest. Imagine, again, a drought comes. The cloud comes over the top. The farmer is excited that it's finally going to rain. Fruit is finally going to come from his crops. And right about the time it's about to rain, a big wind comes up and blows the cloud away, and not one drop of rain comes out. He says those false prophets are like a dried up well, and they're like a cloud that only brings darkness and no fruit. That's what these false prophets are. Guys, is he making it pretty clear that there's two paths and you kind of need to pick one? Is he letting them know, look, this way God will deliver you. God will bring you out before judgment comes. Their way, there's nothing but destruction. And finally, let me just give you the, we went a little over because we gave time for PRC this morning, which is very valuable time to give. But notice it says, I want you to see this. The destiny of the righteous is to be delivered out of temptation. God's not appointed us to wrath. He's going to rescue us before he brings righteous judgment. But now notice the destiny and description of the ungodly. These false prophets. These carnal Christians. These Christian posers. One, they're sexually immoral. That should not be said of a believer. They despise authority. They are presumptuous. They're bold in their false teaching and their godless behavior. There's no shame in their behavior. They're self-willed. They speak evil of dignitaries. They elevate their own ideas above the word of God. They have no shame to the point that they don't even try to hide their sin, but make excuses for it. Their eyes are filled with adultery. They're covetous. They follow the way of Balaam, leading others into sin for the sake of their own personal gain. They are dry wells, void of any real spiritual refreshment, and they are clouds that bring darkness and no nourishing rain. Is Peter making it pretty clear about how to respond to these false teachers? Again, this is written from the heart of a man who knows his time is short. Guys, there are false teachers today just as prevalent, if not more prevalent than then. And guess what, guys? The standard is still the same. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Amen? Don't look at the, how charismatic a man is. If he's dressed really fancy, be really, really careful. If his ministry is huge, again, take a close look. doesn't mean it's fruit. It can mean that he's just fleecing people in the name of God. So guys, let's keep our eyes on him. Let's escape the judgment which is to come. Let's be rescued by the Lord. Let's choose the path that leads to heaven, not the one that will separate us from him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. and We praise and worship and honor your most holy name. And Lord, we thank you that just as you describe Lot as righteous Lot, this morning you can describe me as righteous Dave, not because of anything I've done, well, Lord, because of what you've done for me, what you've done for every one of us in the room this morning. Lord, we are made holy by your shed blood, not our good works. And Lord, we are encouraged to see how you can take a man even like Lot and make him righteous. Lord, we ask that you would make us righteous. Help us to walk in holiness before you. Help us, Lord, not to take sin for granted. Help us not to look at unholiness as being no big deal. 
Lord, help us not to follow the pattern of these false teachers in Scripture. But Lord, help us instead to walk in the center of your will, to elevate your word even above all your name as your word says. Lord, because your name can be twisted, but your word is truth. So Father, we come humbly before you. We lay our lives at your feet. And Lord, we so desperately want to walk in the center of your will. Help us, Lord. Lord, if there be people here this morning that were convicted, I know I was, that were convicted by any of these areas described of the false teachers and those who are outside of your will, Lord, I pray that even today, before they leave, they would get right with you. Lord, we thank you that we can take a million steps away from God and it's only one step back. We thank you, Lord, that you love the prodigal sons and daughters. You so desperately want to see them come home. Lord, help us again to make you the priority, your word the authority in our lives. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.